Welcome to Red Enlightenment, a podcast on socialism, science, and spirituality. In this fifth episode, we will look at the metaphysical system I've been setting out in the podcast so far, drawn from complexity science and socialist theory, and explore how this might be viewed through a spiritual lens. In particular, how it might provide a sense of groundedness in the universe, of empowerment, and serve to console us in our feelings of loss and grief. I hope you enjoy the episode. It was quite a year we just had. The coronavirus pandemic, of course, was the central event, but also record heat waves and flooding, the upheavals of the US elections and of Brexit, as well as major protests from left and right in support of Black Lives Matter on the one hand, and anti-lockdown conspiracy theories on the other. On a number of fronts we found ourselves caught up in global-scale forces that we had very little control over. Yet as much as these world historical events have disrupted our expectations and patterns of movement, many of the most banal aspects of our lives have carried on alongside, constrained but not obliterated. Contrary to how such apocalyptic times are portrayed in film and literature, we still have to take the bins out, buy milk, clean the fridge. We continue to fall in and out of love, to witness births as well as deaths, to start, finish and abandon projects, to move house, to get married and divorced, to study, graduate or drop out, to experience joy and boredom alongside anxiety and terror. We painted and danced and sang. We worked, whether through choice or for many, through coerced necessity. We drank in parks while others lay dying. Our movements may have been greatly restricted, but society and our living experience remained a rich tapestry, albeit with a few more sick jokes sewn in. The discussions of science and socialism in previous episodes provide only a limited engagement with these issues of daily life. We can analyse love and family in terms of how these are shaped by capitalism, or learn about the biological processes of the development of a foetus and the mechanisms of childbirth. But neither gets directly to the experience as such, only the structures and histories that lie above and below. They do not furnish us with a worldview which can help us to navigate the core existential crises that Roberto Unger argues are fundamental to human life. Death, insatiable desire, groundlessness and belittlement. The secular spirituality I have argued for must aim to fill this gap. It is not enough that such a worldview help us to rationally understand the inevitability of these problems, as though viewing our lives from a distance. To function as a spirituality, there must be some emotional consolation, as experienced from within. Federico Campagna argues, and I agree, that even the conciliatory aspect of spirituality has radical potential in how it can help us to survive in difficult historical circumstances. As Audre Lorde put it, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. But while such resilience is a necessary aspect of revolutionary consciousness, it is not alone sufficient, and always risks falling back into the kind of self-help addition to socialism that I previously rejected. Instead, we should aim for a spiritual perspective that provides not only consolation, but also actively motivates us in the direction of producing revolutionary social change. This is vital to what I am calling, following Mark Fisher, a materialist spirituality. 
This materialism does not privilege matter, but bodies, the reality of bodies acting in the world. At the same time, this focus on bodies does not reduce the world to the immediately perceptible, because bodies contain unseen powers, unseen abstract structure, and unseen immanent futures. While spirituality is often associated with a supernatural realm, I have argued that its emotional resonance is based more broadly on what you might call the super-empirical, that which is beyond perception. This can include the supernatural, if one were so inclined to believe, but can be fulfilled by an entirely naturalistic ontology. Of course, what is merely beyond observation may at some point enter into observation, and so extinguish the wonder and enchantment we had created. This is one of the difficulties with deriving spirituality from science, the phenomenon known as the god of the gaps, where the space for the numinous seems to recede with every new scientific discovery and technological innovation. What is more secure is to look to the necessarily unseen, something about the constitution of reality and subjectivity that makes it fundamentally unknowable. As Emmanuel Levinas puts it, this metaphysics expresses a desire not just for the other, for something outside ourselves which is graspable, like food or an expensive watch. It is desire for the absolutely other, that which cannot be fully comprehended or assimilated, which remains permanently out of reach. Aside from this focus on the unseen ultimate reality, I have also argued that there are necessary ethical and embodied aspects of spirituality. By ethics I mean our decisions about moment-to-moment -moment behaviour, whether automatic or deliberate, as well as our longer-term life trajectory. And by embodiment, I mean how the experience of metaphysics and ethics is internally felt rather than merely thought, as well as how these feelings are enacted externally through the body. The focus on bodies also means understanding our own bodies as a core aspect of the spiritual experience, and one that even produces a yearning for such experience. Taking what we've discussed previously about the human body and subjectivity, we can see those core human existential problems as arising from our nature as self-reproducing, sensing, co-adaptive beings, what we called autopoietic. Death is an inevitable aspect of autopoietic being, although the length of life may be variable. Death is an ever-present threat that must always be warded off. Indeed, life is that warding off, in the constant maintenance of a body that tends towards decay. Insatiable desire is a result of the constant sensing required for that reproduction, both as individual and as population, such as the sexual desire which is not necessary for my survival, but is to the intergenerational reproduction of the species. Our need for groundedness, for a coherent worldview, is to allow us to perform the prediction and understanding necessary to navigating the world to find that sustenance and safety. And as finite, bounded bodies existing in coupling with a greater environment, we are necessarily limited in power next to the world which exceeds us. But what is it about religion and spirituality that is so attractive as a means of surmounting these existential difficulties? Is there something in our nature which tends us towards religion? The cognitive anthropologist Pascal Boyer has argued for an evolutionary basis to religious belief, based in particular around brain functions that enable environmental inference and detection of animacy. Inference refers to how we understand our surroundings and make assumptions and predictions about it, filling in the gaps in our perception. Right now, you will be surrounded by objects and features of the landscape that include aspects you cannot see, but which you are assuming. The back of the sofa or the other side of a tree. 
and you are also predicting what is likely to happen. You see a ball fly through the air and you predict where it will be in a moment's time, a car likewise, and that tree you assume is likely to continue to be rooted in the ground. Detecting animacy is a particular form of inference related to how we recognise and predict the movement of other beings, understanding such movement as self-caused and not, like the flying ball, the result of someone else's action. And detecting animacy is also related to facial recognition and empathy. Together, inferencing and animacy detection makes the emergence of supernatural belief actually quite unsurprising. Our minds are already attuned to filling in the gaps in our immediate perception, and to fill those gaps with knowing agency. A god or gods or a spirit realm neatly fulfil the expectations of human cognition, and help to provide what we previously called ontological security. However, and in line with William James's approach, I am not trying to puncture supernaturalistic beliefs by providing a scientific interpretation. Such reductionistic approaches which focus solely on brain function can only provide a one-sided view of any experience, let alone a spiritual one. Experience is equally rooted in the cultural concepts through which we perceive the world, which provide not merely an interpretation of an experience, but contribute to creating that experience. Even if the same brain regions were implicated in a medieval mystic's ecstatic experience and in a modern psychotic episode, there would still be different experiences by virtue of the different context they emerged in. And just because experience arises within the body does not mean it reflects nothing of the world beyond us, particularly as we have evolved in tandem with that environment. On the issue of inference, one could easily argue from a Christian point of view, for example, that God either designed us or ensured we evolved this way so that we would be directed to feel his presence. My objective is not to advance a supernatural interpretation myself, but to advise that if we are equally interested in enabling dialogue with traditional religious believers, as much as defining our own spiritual position, then we should avoid closing off the space for supernatural interpretation unless absolutely necessary. But in either case, whether interpreted in natural or supernatural terms, the human body tends towards finding invisible agency in its environment. If anything, therefore, it is a lack of supernatural belief which is unusual psychologically, as well as historically. Militant atheists often enjoy presenting their rejection of religion as the most coldly rationalistic view of the universe, treating any notion of meaning in the world beyond the human as a mental weakness. But in doing so, they forget their own bodies. They become irrational in how they idealise the human as a purely rational agent, and forget that we are all just as equally non-rational, reactive and feeling beings, such as we will later encounter as the contradictions between the autonomic, limbic and neocortical systems of the brain. And if our ultimate goal is the increasing of powers to act, we must pay attention to how our bodies unconsciously tend towards desiring religion. A truly cold rationalism, one which annihilates the ego and simply views our bodies as complex systems to be intervened into, would not reject religion, but embrace it. Or rather, it would at least embrace this evolved bodily tendency towards desiring spiritual experience, and would experiment with ways to make use of that to increase our powers to act, disregarding any squeamishness towards the notion of religion. To do this does require a temporary suspension of cynicism. This is not an abandonment of reason, however, but a probing, a knowing exploration of otherwise dismissed experiences in order to examine how they operate. 
consider how we suspend disbelief in watching a film or playing a computer game. We play along with the fantasy in order to experience something beyond the possibilities of normal embodiment. And yet what we learn from that experience is not itself a fantasy, but is fully real. We learn about ourselves, about life, about others, through how we respond to the surprises and tensions of the fantasy. Plunging into a new experience, often in spite of its apparent absurdity, can challenge us and motivate re-evaluation, creating new knowledge and new powers. One way to intervene in ourselves is through language. I've described previously how language, but also any symbolic communication, triggers unconscious networks of knowledge and feeling which is irreducible to, even contrary to, our rationalistic conscious belief. We are shaped through our lifelong adaptation to our environments, and this means, for most humans, some emotional relation to religious imagery, even in nominally secular countries. Despite having been effectively atheist for most of my adult life, I am nonetheless someone with a Christian background, who sang hymns at school, is familiar with biblical narratives from film, TV and the Bible itself, someone who has attended marriages and funerals and midnight mass in churches, and whose father was a church organ repairman. The symbols of Christianity, whether I like it or not, have far greater emotional resonance for me than those of other traditions, and often more resonance than cultural phenomena that I actively choose to engage with. The coldly rationalistic approach to my own body would be to try and make use of that affective power, if that is possible without compromising the naturalistic metaphysics I have set out. We have already encountered Spinoza's understanding of God, which he posits as equivalent to nature. God is being itself, the substance out of which all finite things are differentiations. God is infinite in attributes, although we have access to only thought and extension, or mind and matter. God is also infinite in his possible modes, that is, the concrete bodies that make up the world. God is infinite, and everything is God. Whilst I reject the common idea that Spinoza was a closet atheist, a rejection shared by Mark Fisher, nonetheless his notion of God as equivalent to nature does make a system more accessible to otherwise secular thinkers. Other Western philosophers have had similar notions of God that are at least accessible to a naturalistic interpretation, such as that as Hegel, who built on Spinoza. As explained by Robert M. Wallace, Hegel sees God as being more real than we are, in that he relies only on himself for his reality, whereas we rely on the world beyond us for our sustenance, our desires, and so on. But we vary in our reality based on how independent we are from those causal influences, when we become more self-determining. If God is the fullest reality, he therefore emerges from the self-determination of everything that is capable of self-determination. Now, this is not the notion of reality that I have been using, where the phrase more real makes little sense, something is either real or not. But within that reality, there are degrees of causal impact and degrees of autonomy in bodies. In which case, Hegel's God is something like the emergent causality and autonomy of all living beings in their interconnection. This God is found within no individual human or other being, and yet arises from us in collectivity. It is therefore a kind of transcendence in immanence, whereby we are part of a God which is greater than us, or what we have elsewhere called an emergent whole. And for Alfred North Whitehead, also responding to Spinoza, God is likewise within but more than the world. Here, however, God is not so much emerging from living beings, but rather it's a fundamental part of all organisation. 
God has a primordial and consequent nature, meaning both that God prepares the potentials of the future for us and solidifies passing moments into the structure of the world. It is as though with two hands God is ensuring the ongoing process of reality. God is seen not as controlling a pre-written future, but as presenting a series of potentials that we must select from, retaining our freedom to choose whilst luring us towards the good. And in ensuring that moments are not lost as they pass, but are preserved, the world is held together and can form the consistent structures we see around us. In other words, God is like what in complexity science is called the arrow of time. In each of these cases, the term God allows us to envisage the unseen structures and dynamics of reality in conjunction with existing feelings of awe, wonder, and contemplative and devotional practices, which it may be more difficult to associate with terms like system and process. And yet there is nothing about these perspectives, at least as I have presented them, which necessarily conflicts with the naturalism or materialism I have been arguing for. We are not affirming religious concepts like God in the sense that they are normally used, but trying to identify what these terms point to in the universe that we do think is real. The question ceases to be, does God exist, and becomes, what do I mean by the term God? But why not dispense with notions like God altogether, and simply speak of nature? Because, even after clarifying that the two denote the same aspect of reality, the terms God and nature do not merely point to some shared dictionary definition, but to entirely different networks of concepts and affects. A word like God triggers ideas such as the stories of the Bible, images of heaven and angels, objects like the cross, altars and communion wine, bodily movements like prayer, spaces like the church and the graveyard, and how we have felt in relation to all these experiences as they have gathered throughout our lives. To replace this with nature, if you do not already have such an elaborate network of associations, as perhaps an indigenous person might, is to remove the possibility of utilising your prior embodied knowledge as the basis for new transformative experiences. Such religious language is bound to cause discomfort for many, even if you acknowledge there is a part of you that is affected positively by it. Such feelings can themselves provide a moment for spiritual reflection. If we understand ourselves as complex systems with unconscious tendencies that can exist in tension with our conscious mind, we can begin to break down the rigidity of the ego, a necessary moment in the transformation of consciousness. Discomfort can be generative. Both Michael Brooks and Todd McGowan separately call for embracing this kind of discomfort, not seeking to resolve or synthesise every tension, or if you prefer, every dialectical contradiction, but rather to become comfortable sitting with them, observing your body as a system as much as living within it. Rather than, on the one hand, strongly identifying with the conscious ego, or on the other simply following the whims of the chaotic unconscious, we should understand ourselves as being that which emerges at their intersection and in their conversation. God is just an example, however, and one can support a spiritual interpretation of metaphysics through all sorts of different concepts. Indeed, utilising existing religious concepts is not absolutely necessary at all. What is necessary is experimentation with one's body, or many bodies. Your individual body, the collective body of a community or organisation, or the wider social context they are embedded in, to find what best supports this kind of emotional reaction to metaphysical speculation. Some may find simply reading about the unseen can bring ecstatic experiences, whereas others will require specific collective practices and bodily interventions. 
Some potential embodied practices will be discussed in episode 7, but for now I want to focus on the metaphysical content. Specifically, returning to the existential difficulties produced by the human body, and how the system I've been setting out might respond to them. If there is a ground to the system I've been setting out, it may at first appear to be the body, that which is taking the place of matter. But as we have seen, when you look into the body, its stability begins to fall apart. Internally, a body consists of relations between parts. Those parts, which are also bodies, themselves consist of relations between parts, and so on. Every time you think you've found a stable ground, it can be pulled apart. If we move up through these nested scales from smaller to larger, there is no necessary end. Larger and larger bodies can always be made. From the relations between planets in the solar system, between star systems in a galaxy, between galaxies in a galaxy cluster, and so on. And moving down from larger to smaller, we do eventually reach an end, at least on current understandings of quantum mechanics, but this can also not function as a stable ground. As far as quantum field theory is concerned, the smallest subatomic particles, quarks, do not split into smaller components, but rather emerge from a continuum. Particles are the result of excitations on a quantum field which is otherwise a void. Bodies are, in this sense, empty, or sunyata, to recall the Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna. Bodies are also unstable in time. Even a seemingly solid, unchanging object is in process, the result of the constant relation between its internal parts and external bodies. This book resting on the table in front of me requires a stable temperature, gravity and atmosphere to maintain its own stability, meaning it is constantly in relation to the sun, to the earth's mass and to the air. Even stable objects are the result of a dynamic interaction of forces. And the seemingly stable bodies we perceive also contain a far greater aspect of invisible, mutable potentia. These are partly the result of internal relations, how the ink and pages of the book are held together, but also the result of external relations, the book being capable of producing meaning in the hands of a literate person, but meaningless following the extinction of the human race. All this might seem to doom us to a sense of ungroundedness, and thus all the anxiety and disempowerment that comes with it. We must realise, however, that grounding does not need to mean solid physical substrate. As it is a cognitive phenomena, we simply need something that produces a sense of stability, which can ground us emotionally. What can ground all of these metaphysical instabilities is the notion of reality. The actual and the potential are both equally real. The whole, the parts, and the map of relations are all equally real. The smallest body and the largest body are equally real. The conscious experience and the non-conscious object are equally real. Everything is stabilised by virtue of being real. The criteria for reality, I suggest, is that of causal efficacy, whether something has an effect on something else, a position held by both Whitehead and the Indian philosopher Dharmakirti. Both your personal experience and the collectively refined knowledge systems of science are equally real, though of course they point to different aspects of reality. An idea like the unicorn does not point to a real object that exists beyond me that we can all experience as a physical, biological body, but it does point to a real idea, 
and one that can have causal effect, both on my thinking and action, and on a whole culture. If I hallucinate, what I see may be not real, in the sense that no one else can experience it, and yet it is still very real in that the experience is still part of the universe, and has causal effect upon other parts of the universe, specifically through my actions. If something has causal effect on the world beyond it, it cannot be said to be unreal, without the term real being utterly meaningless. With reality as the broadest grounding term of this metaphysics, we can then move through our other core concepts that deal with the production of that reality. Power, process, relation, and body. Reality involves not merely the actual forms that exist momentarily and which we perceive. Those bodies are also storehouses of unseen potentia, or powers. Understanding such potentials is key to understanding what that particular body even is. The bird bouncing on the branch outside my window can fly, even though at this moment it is not doing so. The thing about potentials is that they are totally inaccessible. We might get a sense of what our powers are from our history, from observing others, and so on, but there are also potentials we are totally unaware of prior to them actualising. Who hasn't ever thought, I surprised myself when I did that? Conversely, there are powers we imagine we have which we actually don't. You may, in the past, in a fit of rage and frustration, have imagined yourself punching someone, and envisaged being far more adept a fighter than you likely would have been in reality. Nothing will ever allow us to peer inside a body, even our own, and see its true potentials. The only way to reveal them is to actualise those potentials, at which point they cease to be potentials. Potentials themselves are inherently unseeable. Such powers permeate all things in all their relations. But they are not static. If we have potentials, then that includes the potential to do things that will transform the body, for example, anything to do with learning something new is transformative and creates new potentials. In other words, we have the potential to create potentials, the power to create power. As any of those new potentials we create will also allow us to create new potentials, this chain can come to extend out infinitely, as potentials of potentials of potentials of potentials. Of each and every body in the universe, this can be said likewise. A transformation in a body, or in its external relations, opens up the possibility for even more transformations. One might picture a layer of unseen reality superimposed over the perceptible world, one marked with various shifting intensities, an infinite field that extends through the finite in all directions, vastly exceeding it. Perhaps we can then take a further step, and imagine the actual world slipping into the background, to imagine this field of potentials in itself, in all its organisation divorced from any particular body. This could play the part of a supernatural phenomenon, whilst being thoroughly grounded in the natural, not a separate ideal realm, but something tied to materiality, out of our grasp and yet so very close to us at all times. Once you can see the world around you as real but partial, and understand that powers which aren't currently being activated are all around you, in all things, and all people, and all organisation, then suddenly the world seems more vibrant, more filled with possibilities. We can find new excitement in intervening in the world to uncover those powers, the mere living in a moment given a new vitality. 
It can help to break us out of the melancholia of seeing a world which is not as we desire it, and believing that we're inevitable and unchangeable, such as in the there-is-no-alternative of neoliberal ideology. It draws us instead towards what Mark Fisher, following Catherine Malibu, called the plasticity of reality. It is important, however, to distinguish this infinite potential from the individualist notion that you can do anything if you put your mind to it, which ignores the social blockages that come from outside of the individual. Potentials may be infinite, but that does not mean a shapeless anything. Some are closer and others farther away, some more or less likely, others ultimately possible but not yet immanent. It is an intricate landscape of gaps and blockages, as much as connections and powers. This view of the actual world as a constant blooming of potentials has implications for how we understand time. The future arises from the extant potentials of the world. The past is made up of previously actualized moments recorded in the structure of the world, and the present is the threshold between the two. Rather than past and future being separate realms, therefore, such that one might visit with a time machine, here they are both aspects of the present, imminent in the world. The past is there in the structure of the world as it exists, the result of all past events. The future is simply the variety of potentials for further change that arise from that structure. Time is not a simple playing out of an inevitable timeline, however, with predetermined futures falling into the past. Rather, the past itself impinges upon the future, as every passing moment resets the structure which is the springboard of all futures. In other words, every new moment changes the future. There is a flowing from future into past, and from past into future. As with how Whitehead conceptualised this as the two natures of God, a variety of other religious thinkers have treated causation as emerging directly from the divine. This is often called occasionalism, found in Christianity in the thought of Malbranche, and in Islamic thought in the Kalam theology of figures like Al-Ghazali. For occasionalists, one event does not cause another in a linear fashion, in the manner of billiard balls hitting each other. Rather, there has to be the active intervention of God to bring about that new moment. Every event, no matter how minor, is therefore given divine origin, and God is seen to be acting through all things. Whether one wishes to retain the notion of God for this process or not, the example is nonetheless instructive for how the mere passing of a moment can be given a sacred significance. Although the past is recorded in the present, these traces are not the living systems they once were. Museums are filled with dead objects in glass cabinets, torn away from the functions and meanings they once had. Those contexts, once recorded in the world's structure, have decayed and disappeared. Those fragments of the past that linger on, in the architecture, the statues, the organisations that survive, these are not the past itself, but entirely the present by virtue of their continued existence. The individual body may have repeated through the ages, but the collective body is lost. The present is also unknowable, or I should say, presents are unknowable. The present not being a shared medium, but emerging from and across bodies, cannot be experienced except from a particular perspective. Our collective knowledge systems can capture some of the regularities of the universe, of life, of society, but at the cost of their detail and perspective. My rich experience and your rich experience are both real parts of the universe, 
but fundamentally cut off from one another. I cannot come to experience your experience. Even if we develop mind-reading technology, this would, like a photograph, be only a replication. To genuinely share your experience would mean sharing your sense of an I which is not me. We would have to cease to be a separate you and I altogether. To be you would mean I had access to all of your memories, instincts, powers of reasoning, the feeling of your body and the ability to move and manipulate it. And it would mean not having access to my own current memories, instincts and so on. Because if you were to have access to those, it would change your experience. In other words, if I wanted to fully experience Patrick's experience, I would have to fully become Patrick and cease to be Graham. So I would not be experiencing Patrick's experience at all. Patrick would be. The other, as fundamentally unknowable, is a constitutive part of identity, not merely a gap in our knowledge of something which could be known. If both the past and the present are ultimately unknowable, the future is perhaps the greatest unknown, being that which is yet to be written. And that future unknown can be seen on all timescales, from the microgenetic unknown of each moment to come, to the phylogenetic unknowns of our evolutionary future. On the microgenetic scale, to even predict the next moment is beyond us. I cannot know whether in a few seconds' time I will hear rain start to fall, whether a glass will slip from someone's hand and shatter in the next room, whether I'll receive a message from an old friend. Even in the ordinary, banal routine of the everyday, the unknown is a constant presence. In the longer course of our lives, we cannot predict the major events which will determine our path. Lovers to come, deaths to come, jobs, artistic projects, new friends, new homes. Little may change, or everything may change. No one can say for certain. How long will we live? Where will we end up? What will we have achieved by the end? Every aspect of your life to come is a mystery, not an unknown that is determined, but a multiplicity of paths waiting to be chosen from. In the historical trajectory of society, what new technologies, institutions, cultural phenomena or intellectual notions will constitute the social world in decades or centuries to come? And how might those changes in turn change how people look back upon our present? Imagining the world before the internet is a challenge enough for young people, but what new upheavals might there be to come? What we imagine of the future society now is of course limited to what we currently know, as the quaintness of the science fiction of the past should show us. And even the most prescient prediction of, say, the internet in prior decades or centuries was at best the mere outlines of a possibility, not the richness of its real modern form. The phylogenetic future has not been much of a concern in the history of human thought, given the slowness of our genetic evolution and the lack of means to intervene ourselves. But both the threat of species-ending climate change, the development of genetic engineering, and the possibility of artificial general intelligence giving birth to new forms of consciousness, means that the evolutionary history of life forms is increasingly a cause for concern. If we count evolution not merely as natural selection, but as any systemic mechanism of variation, selection and adaptation, including through social forces, then we might see the ongoing technological revolution as a time of evolutionary acceleration. But of course, all of these future unknowns, whether at the scale of passing moments, lifetimes, social history or evolutionary time, are not simply points on a track ahead of us that we catch up to. 
Each is formed and developed and annihilated and reformed by what actually comes to pass as the present. There is no solid ground to time, but the initial conditions of the future are always shifting, and so too does the future shift. Thus the fundamental and not merely current unknowability of the future. It is not simply that we could, with sufficient skills and resources, fully and accurately predict the future, as in the classical thought experiment Laplace's Demon, because the act of developing those tools and performing those predictions would itself create a shift in potential futures. When we are inside the system we are studying, our very studying shapes the system, and so our knowledge will always remain incomplete. Given that incompleteness of knowledge, our experience of future potentials, in our hopes, fears and expectations, is not and can never be the same as those future potentials themselves, and the disparity between expectation and reality will always be a source of pain and disappointment, as well as joyful surprise. Our experience of the past, in memory and written history, is likewise not the past, but a constantly decaying afterimage of our experience, or else a totally constructed narrative out of what fragments remain. And even our experience of the present is not the present, being both limited in perspective and filtered through preformed categories and attention-guiding presumptions. If we are to speak of enlightenment, therefore, it cannot be based on the expectation that complete knowledge is in any way possible, or even desirable, given that such absences are fundamental to the structure of reality itself. The fact that reality is potentially infinite can act as a break on intellectual hubris that might still imagine reality can be totally known. But it does not need to harm the quest for knowledge. We can see knowledge here as not merely extractive, but productive, creative, and not merely in the sense of constructing discourses, but as intervening in and shaping reality itself. We can seek the truth of the infinite, entering into a reasoning process to expand our understanding, and it will provide us with an infinite scope for expanding our knowledge, without any hope of ever reaching fulfilment. A common way for religions to connect the human to this infinite and unknowable absolute is through a notion like soul or spirit. If soul points to some unchanging substance or essence which underlies a living body, that seems to be incompatible with the metaphysics I've been putting forward, where bodies are ultimately empty, and powers only appear at a certain threshold of organisation. But it's worth considering, as with God, what phenomenon the notion is aiming to account for. The modern Christian notion of the soul was not merely drawn from the Bible, but has been influenced by ideas from Greek philosophy. These particularly centred around the writings of Neoplatonists such as Plotinus, who was also a significant influence on Islamic philosophy, and developed through Christian thinkers like Pseudo-Dionysius and St. Augustine. The Greek term we translate as soul is actually psyche, which, it should be clear, is also the root of our modern English word psyche, or mind. The Greek notion of soul is typically tied to both life and mind, whereas our modern notion of a mind which is separate from the body appears much later, in the thought of René Descartes. Similarly, the term spirit, despite its often disembodied implications, also ultimately derives from life, spiritus being the Latin word for breath. And that concept of spirit is also used to refer to collective mental and social faculties, as well as purely biological ones. Think of the spirit of the age, or zeitgeist. 
this Geist is prominent in the work of Hegel, whose Phenomenology des Geistes is variously translated as the Phenomenology of Spirit or the Phenomenology of Mind. If the soul or spirit is a kind of unified life and mind, then we once again are pointed towards the notion of autopoiesis. As argued by Evan Thompson, the process of reproduction in requiring environmental sensing to secure the survival of the body necessarily implies a process of cognition. Life and mind are coextensive. Instead of thinking of the soul or spirit as an underlying substance, therefore, we might see it as emergent, referring to the animacy and drive that appears in complex adaptive bodies. But as I have said before, mind is not consciousness. We already accept the notion of an unconscious mind, so it may be worth seeing all living bodies as similarly unconscious minds, most of which have never developed the level of complexity required for consciousness. There is not then a hard line between human and plant, but a shared unconscious which we emerge out of in differing levels of complexity. This allows for the possibility that new consciousness may emerge from the not yet conscious, something which helps to account for both human evolution and the speculative appearance of future sentient AI or engineered animal consciousness. This life and mind, of course, is already extending beyond the boundaries of the organism, both into our inorganic body of the material environment and in the extended and social cognition of tools, smartphones, collective decision-making and swarm intelligence. Our being embedded within such complex systems means mind, or cognitive process, envelops everything we do. To have a relation to another human is to enter into and develop a shared cognition, from impromptu conversations to the formal coordination of a military operation. Edwin Hutchins investigated this latter cognition in the wild aboard large naval vessels, showing how these systems which bring together human beings, physical tools and spaces with regularised procedures constitute a cognitive system of their own that is irreducible to the human mind. Likewise, we find collective cognition in homes, schools and workplaces, across social media and in mass crowd events. We are always nodes in larger minds, as well as constructed of smaller minds, such as the microorganisms which make us their home. Our individual selves only emerge through the interaction of these various scales of body. Whilst we are the most internally complex and autonomous system on the earth, as individuals we are nonetheless greatly surpassed in power by the social holes and global biological holes, such as weather systems and geological systems, that we are nested in. The total interconnection of these systems is what Lynn Margulis and James Lovelock referred to as Gaia, the single interconnected self-regulating whole of which all life on Earth is a part. This term Gaia, which caused much criticism and ridicule at the time, today seems to be finding new scientific defenders in the context of contemporary climate issues, including some former critics who are now attempting to Darwinize Gaia. When we begin seeing mind or spirit within us, between us, flowing through collectives of which we are only a part, through and between towns and cities, spanning the whole of the Earth's ecosystem, and all of these bodies in their interrelation, playing down upon and emerging up into each other in cascades and accumulations, the whole world can begin to seem like one single mind. 
It is, of course, one whose consciousness appears only partially, fragmented into its individual human parts, never as a singular conscious leviathan. We might think of this as a form of panpsychism, of mind which stretches through everything. But unlike Spinoza's panpsychism, where all matter is accompanied by mind, here mind emerges specifically in complex patterns of organisation, not in matter itself. Anyone entering for the first time at this point would assume this to be textbook idealism, something antithetical to a socialist materialism. But I maintain what I am describing emerges from a materialist theory of mind. The mind is not set apart from the body, it is the body, the whole of which appears out of all of its functions of sensing, reproduction and adaptation. But mind is a process that cannot be reduced to consciousness. It is a process which extends away from the individual human body into its material environment and which is dialectically coupled with other bodies. And through the consistent coupling of human minds, new collective bodies emerge, which are themselves minds. Self-reproducing, co-adaptive and non-consciously sensing bodies. It is a common enough spiritual assertion that everything is connected. Here I am more specifically arguing that every mind is ultimately connected through the interrelation of socio-cognitive systems. With these various depictions of ultimate reality as our ground, including the infinite depth of potentia, eternally blossoming process, and the global interconnection of spirit, we can now turn to those other existential defects of death, belittlement, and insatiable desire. When we lose someone who we care deeply for, they do not cease to exist for us. We can entirely forget an acquaintance from school or from an old job, and when suddenly being reminded of them at some unexpected moment, come to notice that there was a total absence in your mind in the intervening years or decades. But with a loved one, their absence is not experienced itself as an absence, but a powerful presence. We do not see them necessarily, but feel the space around where they were as though they are still there. Where they used to sit, their possessions, those moments in the yearly cycle that we tied to them, their birthday, Christmas, Father's Day, now the anniversary of their death. They live on within and between us. In truth, so much of our relation to others, even when still alive, is in their absence. As we think about them in our separate homes, in separate rooms, while we dream, as we type messages for an avatar on a screen. So often we are filling in the gaps where the full human should be, and we feel their presence in spite of their distance and invisibility. And so our minds continue to fill in such presence even after they die. Prior to their death, we feel assured of them responding if we were to reach out. It is difficult to let go of this feeling after death, even if we know, rationally, they cannot. Our embodied knowledge of them, of their ties to their surroundings, remains. We speak to them, perform rituals for them, leave their possessions undisturbed, and continue to consider what they want us to do. 
Even in those secular eulogies which flood social media following someone's death, the deceased is often addressed by name in sentences with the pronoun you, as though they were listening. In spite of our lack of belief in any afterlife, a connection to the dead seems to come quite naturally. This might cause some dissonance for those who hold to naturalistic beliefs, but I contend there are perfectly secular means of fulfilling this emotional need for afterlife without compromising naturalism. Even if we reject afterlife as a space that one travels to after death, or as an unbroken continuation of living consciousness in a disembodied spirit, that does not mean we have to totally dispense with immortality. Death is, of course, not only unknowable, but the very end of knowledge. It can be difficult to come to terms with that switch, the single moment whereby an irreversible end is past. I tried when grieving for my father to imagine his final moments as though they were my own, which led only to my body rejecting the thought with a horrid lurch. We typically imagine death from the outside, as an observer of the dying, rather than from the first-person perspective, as the I who dies. It is, of course, an impossibility, consciousness imagining the absence of consciousness, and thus the frustration or even spiralling panic that can result from its contemplation. The desire, indeed the ease, with which we imagine consciousness continuing after death is wholly unsurprising. Even if we imagine that consciousness is entirely disrupted by death, that is not the only consideration in the end of life. Death is in any case never a total annihilation of everything in the body, but a loss of function, and a breaking down of wholes into parts. Our whole body dies, and our major organs die, and our cells die, but the smallest molecular components rejoin the earth. If we are to join Mark Fisher in imagining all being as arising from a continuum, then our lives are but a brief gathering up of intensity on that continuum, before collapsing back down, a rhythm playing across the human generations. But I don't want to situate any afterlife in our molecular components as such, but rather in our relations with and effects on other bodies. Ourselves are not merely our conscious experience, but all the unconscious cognition that undergirds it. I have argued further that these processes reach out beyond the bounds of our physical bodies, through tools, group behaviour and our contribution to the whole social world beyond us. My conscious experience may end, and the I which is the organism may disintegrate, but this extended I lives on, in the effect we had on the bodies around us. At its most obvious, I live on in the thoughts people have of me, of the impact I had on their lives, of the materials I leave behind, like this podcast. Perhaps you are even listening to this after I have gone, and yet still I speak to you beyond the grave, exactly as I did before. And if today I am at least in part my clothes, my glasses, my books, then is not a small part of me left after my death? Remaining in the minds of loved ones after our deaths, or in the minds of strangers through our fame, may be a form of afterlife, but this too will fade as they die. Your works are slowly forgotten, your photographs become tattered and lost, you slip back into obscurity. But aside from this impermanent, subjective immortality, there is another form which can never fade. In every moment we act, including in our inaction. And that moment, however it comes together, sets the stage for each subsequent moment. 
The intersection of all these moments in all bodies sets the stage for all subsequent human action. What at this moment I do, and you do, and everyone around you does, and what all the bodies in the world are doing, buildings, plants, mountains, animals, rivers, everything, whether actively or passively, is together the jumping-off point for the next moment to come. Whatever happens in the future will have relied on all those previous moments, whether we chose to act or not to act, or made no conscious decision at all. That is, even in our moments of indecision and ignorance, we are writing human history. Indeed, the history of the universe, in a way that cannot be erased. Our actions may be left actively in the structure of the world, traces that generations later can read back, such as photographs, texts, organisations we founded, and so on, such traces which can always fade. But the existence of future moments which occur only because of the particular configuration of the universe which you, in some small way, made happen, this cannot be undone. This is what Alfred North Whitehead called objective immortality. The moment evaporates, but the stain is permanent. This is afterlife as the shape of the world as we, or those we mourn for, have left it, the direction it has taken because of our countless interactions that make us objectively immortalised, not just in the minds of our friends and family and admirers, but in being part of the building blocks of the universe for the rest of time. In this, we can have the best of both worlds. Our sense of awe in the infinite is connected to the concrete actions of our finite lives. To think this far both into the deep future and the deep past is to invoke the notion of ancestors. The idea of ancestor in secular discourse can bring up an image of an anonymous past individual, the many billions of those who came before us, of whom there is no trace remaining. But when such ancestors are attended to as specific agents, such as given a name, a face, a group identity, and when their memory serves to guide our action, they can, in a sense, actively exist as a force in the present. For such ancestors that enter into the production of ongoing reality, we could perhaps use the notion of ancestral spirits. Ancestral spirits, again, need not appear as substances, literal ghosts which haunt us. They are, as in Fisher's notion of hauntology, that which continues to have a historical causal effect despite its absence, its death. I would want to emphasise, however, that this is not merely a negative or melancholic spirit, as the Gothic notion of haunting might suggest. It can equally be emboldening and cathartic, as when fallen heroes of past struggles are invoked to orient us to the ongoing, long-term narrative of struggle, what Walter Benjamin called messianic time. But of course, through our actions, we too become ancestors. Robert McFarlane suggests this flipping of perspectives as a move towards ecological consciousness, to see the future from the vantage point of the future looking back at us, to ask, are we being good ancestors? I would go further. We gain the most by orienting not merely around recent human history, but to all of human history, all of the Earth's history and that of the universe, to see ourselves from the perspective of all of time, in Spinoza's terms, subspecie eternitatis. 
For Unger, we experience belittlement from our limited power in comparison to this vast world which exceeds us. We can, he argues, surmount this through increasing our power to act. But I would still see this as a fundamental difficulty, like death, insatiability and groundlessness. We can only ever increase our powers relatively. The world always exceeds us. And even if our power, in some immediate sense, can seem entirely satisfactory, we are still humbled next to the vastness of other worlds that might have been. Every decision is one outcome from many potentials, and we are powerless to uncover what might have occurred if we had acted otherwise. Once we consider power in the dimension of time and not merely in the present moment, that is, as diachronic and not merely synchronic, we appear again as fundamentally minute in our powers against the full potential of the universe. At the same time, however, the vastness of the world is a vastness of potential, a vastness of your own unknown powers, and a vastness of possible outcomes depending on the actions you and everyone else decides to take. The multiplicity of branching paths, which we cannot always discern as significant prior to their actualization, even in many cases for years to come, lends a gravity to every decision. Everything, whether action or inaction, active or passive, has knock-on effects, being the creation of the world around us and beyond. These may be of greater or lesser spread and transformative impact, but even those actions and inactions which merely maintain the continuity of the present are necessary in hindsight to all future moments. We may be humbled against the total powers of the universe, but we nonetheless have our own power to shape the world that extends far beyond what we currently know. As Spinoza is often quoted as saying, nobody has determined yet what the body is capable of. We are at once, therefore, both permanent and impermanent. Permanent in the effects that ripple out from our lives, but impermanent in our finite bodies. Every moment is lost as soon as it appears. Everything that we might wish to hold on to is unstable. The perfect relationship ends. The nightmare relationship ends. The flame flickers, the clock strikes midnight, the party ends. The moment always slips through our fingers like water. This moment I am experiencing now, or the one you are, each is the crossing of countless paths, ones which will never cross perfectly again. That speck of ink that has travelled so far to reach me from its source, as to the paper and the plastic body of the pen and its metal nib, all coming together once and then departing again. I think back through the times when I had been surrounded by friends, not knowing this would be the last time we would be together. Life is not, of course, a random, incoherent barrage of unrelated events. Rather, in every moment you make a decision, you create a path. As we look back through our lives, leading step by step through what had to happen to bring us to where we are today, we must realise that each of those points on your timeline, every person, place, object, they too had their paths with multiple influences. How much could have gone differently? How unrecognisable a life might you have had if only one brick on one of those paths had fallen elsewhere? And you, how many times did you act off-handedly, unaware that you were at a turning point? A new friend you made by being in the right place at the right time, 
a mistake in how you spoke or acted that repelled a lover, or the accident you narrowly avoided without ever knowing. Perhaps you saw an interesting comment on social media and absent-mindedly clicked follow on the poster's account, only for them to become, years later, someone dearly important to you, who guided and changed who you became. What were, or who were, those adjacent possible realities, the roads not taken? And consider that you, as an agent, are part of this effect for everyone else. You have been at someone else's turning point, perhaps again without ever knowing it. The actions you take have consequences for yourself and for the other, even when they are invisible to both of you. All this contingency, all these forks in our path, can lead to an insatiable yearning to know what else might have been. One can get lost in reflecting on these adjacent possibilities, whether in wonder or despair, trapping us in a loop of disempowering what-ifs. But it can contribute instead to our feelings of empowerment when it draws our attention to the significance of every moment of our lives, to how any seemingly insignificant action may turn out, with hindsight, to have rippled through the rest of everything you do, or to have reached far beyond you despite your never knowing. Every action and inaction lays the ground for our future selves and our future world. We and our worlds can be changed, and we can help to change them. So not only are the things around us imbued with vitality because of their potentials, nor just because of their constant flowering into being, nor just because of the interconnectedness of their bodies, but also because of the uniqueness of their being right here, right now. The paths that they have followed as whole objects, the paths that their parts have followed to construct that whole object, and the paths they will continue on as both whole and eventually dismantled parts, are fragile and irreplaceable. When you approach a body, whether a human being or an immobile object, we might see it not as a thing, but as everything it has been and everything it could be, to see the singular in all its multiplicity. The multiple paths that are crossing over at that moment of experience and which may move together for a while and eventually part ways again. The threads that went into the carpet, the hands that wove it, that transported it, that installed it, that take it away to the trash, and how in the end the fibres break apart again and go their separate ways. This impermanence of things is in fact key to understanding life. The threshold of death may be sudden, but the decay of death sets in much earlier. We might even think of a constant death being a core part of life. Skin cells die and are shed at a rate of around 20 million per hour across your whole body, or 5,000 cells per second, an invisible dust cloud streaming from your body in every moment. This is why, and how, we must reproduce ourselves, to take in new energies to replace those depleted, and fuel the creation of the boundary, the warding off of decay. That tension between the collapse towards disorder and the struggle against it is life, so that without an ever-present dying, we would not be living beings. In the next episode, we will revisit this impermanence to investigate the operation of desire and its relation to ethics from romantic love to fascism.
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash onalifeglug. You can find me on Twitter also at onalifeglug. And if you're interested in my previous work, check out my book, The Shock Doctrine of the Left, which is available from Polity Books. <laughs>